Welcome to New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through your generosity. Please consider making a donation through our Ways to Give link on zencare.org. We're very delighted. Sabine is a friend of ours and on the advisory board of the Zen Center. And we've known each other a couple of years maybe five years, and we both serve on the board together on the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And it just seems like an obvious family feeling to have her here at, and sharing her experience of practice and illness. And to feels like it's a really important way of thinking about your own anxieties around being in a role and how to really consider giving and receiving and thinking about how you are in this practice and not in your head, but learning maybe something about being in your body too. They're sitting over there because then they can't see how crazy my notes are. <laughs> so um, I'm with you today uh, because I am a three-time cancer survivor, um, and I'm also a Dharma teacher. And I'm going to share with you about my experiences with cancer and um, what I learned about my practice through uh, those experiences. <clears throat> Um, I've had cancer three times, stage three and twice metastatic. And just to, like Bianca was saying, put it aside, I got results recently that my um, scan was clear of cancer, which is really great. Um, uh, but it's been a trip and, and challenging. So I came to Buddhism, to the Dharma, pretty young. Uh, I, I majored in comparative religious studies in college and focused on early Buddhism. So I've been a Dharma practitioner, a meditation practitioner for over 20 something years. Um, but for a long time I was really off and on as a practitioner, especially when I was younger. It was sort of like when things were going well in life, my practice kind of slid off and um, when things were getting tough, I would show up at at that point, I was studying in a Zen tradition at the Zendo um, much more often for kind of a tune-up. So I had this kind of what my teacher at that time called a curative approach to, to practice. And a curative fantasy that, you know, when things were tough, when um, I didn't feel so centered or was having a lot of challenges, I turned to practice as a way to kind of calm, to calm my mind, to find some equanimity, to center. And that was helpful, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but there was sort of a deeper practice that I didn't really open up to until I, I really the shit hit the fan with um, my illness. And it really kind of broke me open um, going through uh, that physical challenge of cancer and all that it brought with it, the emotional and, and psychological so I was first diagnosed when I was 34, 
about 11 and a half years ago with stage three breast cancer. And it was such a shock. I was a yogi, I was a meditator, I ate really well. I was the person that you know my friends looked to to find out about what supplements they should be taking or what approach they could take to certain parts of their life. And uh, you know, I never expected that I would have cancer. And it really propelled practice to the center of my life. So uh, I was a meditator, but it's not that I had a really, really deep practice at that time. I was living in DC. Um, I had left the, the teacher that I'd been studying with in New York, Barry Majid, who's a Zen teacher. But it was really helpful to at least have a practice, a meditation practice, a, a faith in terms of the Dharma teachings as a way to ground myself. Um, I had a lot of people to turn to, mentors. Uh, my uh, Barry is a psychoanalyst, so he recommended a really great therapist for me to see in DC. Um, I started practicing with someone who became a, a core teacher for me, Tara Brock. And you know, I I just want to kind of point to how powerful a faith community can be. And it doesn't have to be a religious faith, but, but that sense of community being really central to um, undergoing any kind of illness or crisis in one's life. And um, how maybe some of your uh, the patients or people that you come into contact with might, might or might not have that, and to, to kind of be aware of that. So I was really fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of really wise and loving people and they were really ready to support me in whatever ways I needed. And apparently, I didn't think I needed very much. Um, so I was already in a pretty good self-care routine. Um, and although friends played a huge part in kind of being there for me, just simply reaching out and listening, although I did get a lot of I'm praying for you too, um, which especially my stepmother made me really feel uncomfortable with. So I, I, totally get that. Um, I was keeping people, and I think in a sense mostly myself too, distant from my experience. So I um, went into kind of control mode. You know, I researched all the things that I needed to do and um, really doubled down on my practice. And um, I went through a yoga teacher training. I was working full time. I was doing all these alternative therapies. And that sense of control really extended to my meditation practice as well. And it was an extension of this kind of curative approach to practice. So um, I think I only realized later that it wasn't really helping in terms of um, something deeper that I'm talking about that, that the, this contemplative path can hold for us. So a lot of people, I think, come to the contemplative path, to contemplative practice, with that idea that they're going to you know, sort of get rid of parts of themselves, whether it's their um, anger, or depression, anxiety, fear, um, their illness, that it becomes kind of a battle with life. So this is how Barry, my teacher, put it says, we can never win these battles, but sadly we can almost win them, leading neutered or constricted lives designed to minimize our risk of emotional dependency or injury. Alternately, we can cultivate experiences of calmness, deep inner silence, or even bliss, and identify these with our true self. Then all our troublesome emotions get shunted aside, only all too often to erupt as a shadow. 
I love that, but sadly we can almost win them, leading neutered or constricted lives. So I spent a lot of time with people not only not falling apart, which is really what I should have been doing, um, considering what was going on, I was, I was getting sicker and sicker, but I was really um, about showing how together I really was. And that's what I thought it meant to be present. You know, I thought that's what it meant to be in my practice, is to be really strong, um, to be brave. To, and it's not that I never cried. It's not that you know I didn't show any emotion with friends. But there was still this sense of control that um, was really, really present. Not that I noticed then. This is all in hindsight. And of course, it's a balance, right? There was a certain amount of action and activity and um, really responsibility that I needed to take. But looking back now, there, there wasn't balance with that. There, there was a, a lot of fear was behind that sense of control. And it wasn't really until things really started falling apart um, that I started showing up to my experience in a, in a full way. So the long story short is that I ended up really, really sick. I was living in New York by that point. Um, I was going back and forth to the emergency room. They didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was totally dependent on my friends for everything, like everything. So they had to walk my dog, do my laundry, fill my prescriptions, make me food, rub my head, dry my tears. I was physically really incapacitated. Um, and I had to let go control or recognize that I never had any in the first place. And letting go of that control, really, um, that kind of fear of really being close to death, really forced me to be present. I know that my practice was behind that capacity that I had to really be there, but it required me opening up to that presence. So I've always been a pretty warm person, and I have a lot of friends, um, have healthy and strong relationships. And I always considered I was open-hearted, but through this process I realized that um, you know, generosity is just as much about receiving as it is giving. And the heart is either open or closed. Like, it's not like you get to choose the direction. Like, it only goes out, but it's really open. It wasn't really open. It was kind of creaked open to let my love come out and kind of closed when I really had to be vulnerable and let it come in. So Barry's teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck, um, the late Zen teacher, she says that joy is whatever is happening minus our opinion of it. <laughs> So she's not talking about happiness or unhappiness. Those are like linked to pleasure and pain or liking or disliking. She's really talking about a presence that's beyond liking and disliking. So it's not that happiness is the same as joy. I could be unhappy and still be present to joy. Joy is a simple moment of just breathing and being present to whatever is happening. So I ended up in the hospital with kidney failure, um, really weak, in pain, with tubes down um, my nose. They were pumping my stomach. 
Um, and I was in a lot of pain. I was extremely uncomfortable. And I got into like one of the most hysterical laughing fits that I've ever had with my friend Ahmad, who's one of the people who was taking really good care of me at the time. And I really, I was touching into that possibility of joy. I was not happy, and it was not pleasant at all. But I found the ability to be fully present to the experience, which was actually really absurd. Like the, the kind of my position I was in and the kind of circumstances that got us there, the emergency room, which is, I spent a lot of time in emergency rooms. They are always a scene, like something crazy, is all, especially in New York City, is always going on in an emergency room. And fully present and aware, I could be not only just in that pain or that unhappiness. And I realized that letting go of my need to control and feel like I had it together was what allowed me to open up to the love that was around me. My friends you know, would have done anything for me. But it wasn't until I absolutely needed them that I let that love come in. So I think, like Charlotte Jokobek says, joy is whatever is happening minus our opinion of it. I think love is whatever is happening minus our attempt to control it. You know, I really didn't want to fully feel the pain and the fear and sometimes hopelessness I felt. But in doing that, in trying to control, I couldn't really wholeheartedly be with my experience. So my inquiry for, for us and for our conversation is really around what helps us fully be present and aware in that way. You know, for you in your lives, but also for the people that you're going to serve. What allows you to open to joy and love and help facilitate that for the person that you're meeting? Because um, you're gonna meet fear and pain and horror and can you be fully present for that? And can you allow another person to be able to feel that? So I've thought a lot about this in the past decade and practiced a lot, done a lot of retreat practice and long retreat practice. And I really think that the answer is the body. So um, a Zen, nun from the 15th century, Japan, um, she was asked to, uh, to describe her spiritual practice, and she said, I meet life with my whole body. So I come from the Theravadan tradition now, that's what I practice in, which is early Buddhism. We really like our texts, like we have a lot of texts that we read, and lists that we memorize, and, um, and talk about what the Buddha said. We don't know if it's really what he said, but we say it's what he said. <laughs> I know they think that's really funny that we're always doing that. Um, and you know, if you look at the classical teachings, there is a lot about the body. The first foundation of what we call mindfulness is the body. It's the longest foundation of the four. And it's all about training ourselves to be aware of our sensory experience. It's all over the Pali Canon, the, the 
texts as they're written in this um, ancient language. And yet we translated this word sati as mindfulness. Like we put the word mind in it, which is like, duh. It doesn't mean mindfulness. You know, it means awareness. It means presence. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the mind. The mind is not bad. But it's really, I think, um, about our particular Western cultural conditioning that we focus so much on the mind and thinking as um, what we're training. We actually need to untrain in that. Um, that's a whole other talk that I could give. But I think that for our own lives and for serving others, we really need to train in what we were describing as mind, heart, bodyfulness, which is a really easy word, you know, it's like rolls up the tongue. Um, but, you know, something that really integrates this capacity to be present in this whole bodied way. So much about this culture privileges the mind. You know, I'm, I want to first admit I'm not very good at this. And um, I am very well trained. You know, we reward the mind. We re reward that centeredness, that mind-centeredness in everything, in everything in our culture. But that overemphasis really doesn't serve us in that capacity to be fully present. And it's hard, it's hard to be present in the body. Like the body is not um, comfortable. You know, it's often aching and giving us these messages um, of things that are unpleasant, that we're not gonna like, and can we still open to that joy? That's the question for us, I think, as practitioners and as service providers, as people who want to give to others. Most of us have a complicated relationship to our bodies. You know, there are a lot of things that we do to try and push away that discomfort, whether it's switching positions or numbing it in certain ways, drinking our way out of it, self-medicating, distracting. And so much of our meditation practice is really about that ability to tolerate our own presence, even when it's not comfortable. And that's what we can offer others, is that ability to be fully present in our bodies, open to whatever is there. Not trying to control it, not trying to push it away. Meeting our lives and others' lives with our whole body. So another thing that the Buddha said was that mindfulness or awareness is internal and it's external and it's both internal and external. So it's our capacity to be with our own experience, to be with the experience of another and to be with both of it at the same time. So we use um, the eyes as a metaphor in a lot in our culture. You know, we talk about seeing things clearly, we talk about um, insight even is a visual metaphor. And I think a metaphor that helps us with this capacity to be fully present in our bodies is the metaphor of hearing and listening. So hearing is apparently the first sense that we develop in the womb. 
and it's the last sense to go before we die. It um, has this quality of receptivity that's not passive or numb. You know, sometimes we think we definitely overemphasize and over-reward action in this culture. And we sort of dismiss receptivity as something passive. It's not generative. But listening is this capacity to be receptive in this very alive, awake, and engaged way. So I like listening as a metaphor for how to be with our bodies. You know, can we listen with our whole bodies? So I want to just end um, for conversation with a story about um, that I heard on On Being, um, the NPR show, uh, with the acoustic biologist Katie Payne. And first of all, like that there is something called an acoustic biologist is really cool. But she, she was um, part of the team of biologists in the 1960s who first discovered that humpback whales communicate by sound. Um, and that they have these intricate patterns of song. So, you know, already in the 60s, just listening really deeply to the world in a way that opened up this other experience, this joyful experience. But more recently, she became interested in elephants. And she asked for permission um, to sit in the Seattle Zoo for a week to observe the elephants. And she just sat there for a few days, just sitting around the elephants. And after a few days, she noticed that she was feeling over and over again a throbbing in the air, a change of pressure, a change of pressure in her ears that would occur when she was near elephant cages, but not when she was somewhere else. She realized that this was sound that was below the pitches that humans can hear. And there was a whole other level of communication that was happening between the elephants below our frequency. She described the air as thrilling, as shuddering, and as throbbing. So she was feeling a sound vibration that no one else in these zoos and all the elephant researchers were really feeling sensing, hearing. She paid attention to and was able to unlock for Western science a whole other level of communication. And now there's been much more research into this elephant frequency. I'm sure indigenous people have probably been aware of this elephant frequency long before us you know, disembodied Westerners decided to figure it out. But what about us poor disembodied Westerners? How, how can we learn to listen more deeply? Can we use our contemplative practice, our meditation practice, to do that? I know there was a really big difference when I was in the hospital, when I was in emergency rooms, or going in for surgery. There was a big difference between those doctors and practitioners who I felt were really listening, who were really present and aware, and those that were not. It's a palpable difference. Someone can be looking you in the eye, taking notes, and they're not there. I mean, forget the people who are rushing and like just making the rounds and ready to go. But can we really show up whole-bodied for people? Can we do that for ourselves and for our own experience? So I'd love to have a conversation with you all about this and 
really open to sharing um, any of my experience, so please feel free to ask any questions, but really would love to hear about your own experiences too, so thank you.